Welcome to episode 63 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a bunch of robot fanatics, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Hey, Chris, how's it going over there? Weather's been uh, pretty great in LA, hasn't it? Uh, it's been actually terrific. Uh, surf weather has been great, and I've been love uh, having the sun out. Unfortunately, we have somebody who's living in Texas right now who, who's fortunately still alive with us. Eddie, how, how you doing over there? Yeah, I've heard you had a lot of white precipitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been crazy. I uh, opened the door on Monday, and it looked like I'd forgotten to uh, close the chip into my Neo. There's white Delrin everywhere trees cars <laughs> and it was cold <laughs> i don't know what that white stuff was we don't get that here how cold um, did it get yeah oh so sun, for us here like i'm just outside of san antonio which is kind of central south central texas um i think the last time it snowed and stuck here was probably like 1985 it was in the 1980s like mid 80s so um it's a very rare event and we had a, over a foot of snow Sunday night, Monday morning. And that was, you know, so I think the coldest it got here, it wasn't that cold. It was like minus one. Um, but the issue was like it was minus one for, well, between like minus one and positive seven degrees for about 24 hours, which overlapped with the 24 hours where uh, the power company cut off was doing rolling blackouts. So like our city, our little town just outside of San Antonio was cut off for almost 24 hours. Oof. So no heat in the house, no power. Yeah. It was kind of rough. Got, got pretty chilly. And then they got, they got it back on. I mean, I, I don't want to complain because there's people in Texas that are probably still waiting to get power or water back. You know, we got ours back pretty fast, but still it was, I can imagine like going three days, like, I'm sure we got lucky. We didn't have any issues with our pipes freezing, um, but based on all the plumbing vehicles I see running around the neighborhood, I think some people were not so lucky here once everything thawed out. Like today was in the 70s, just to give you an idea. <laughs> like snow's long gone. Um, we're back to normal weather. But um, but yeah, like after they got the power on, we had like one, I think Tuesday was good. Uh, I was able to get the shop up and running again. Um, and then Wednesday, our water, they cut the water off. Uh, for about 24 hours, which, you know, wasn't too bad. I don't need it in the shop. Um, it's a little smellier than usual, but <laughs> everything was working. Huh. Yeah, but that, and then they got that restored. Uh, the next, I think, by Thursday, everything, all the infrastructure issues were resolved in our particular part of the city. It's weird. San Antonio's kind of, um, like, downtown is, I think, the lowest point, or the south side of the town is the lowest point, and then the like the north side where I live is kind of up on an escarpment. So when they when they have these issues, like and they can't run the pumping stations at night because there's no power, you know, everything kind of drains through gravity, right? And then <laughs> we have to go fill it back up. It kind of starts like the downtown got water first and then like every elevation kind of got water. You know what I'm saying? It kind of <laughs> starts at the bottom and goes up. There's this little town on the northeast side that's like the highest point, I think, in San Antonio. And they they were like they went like two days or maybe three days with no water. They're the last ones to get it. Yeah, we were kind of in the middle. But, but yeah, it was kind of you know, it, was a, it was a bit of an adventure, but uh, we came through it okay. And basically, uh, I didn't work Monday. You know, I was really just trying to stay warm and then keeping an, you know keep an idea or keeping an eye on 
on the pipes and stuff like that. Then Tuesday, I was back to work. Shop was up and running a full day, pretty much every day since then. Even right now, it's running. Uh, Neo's running while we're talking here. So, yeah, been trying to catch up. I was going to ask if you ever got insulation up in the garage and what the temperatures dropped to uh, in so the shop. I put, I never put, um, so yeah, I, I've been going back and forth on the insulation all in the winter. It's definitely a no brainer. Um, in the summer, it's actually going to trap heat. So I'm not, because the heat's, you know, I'm probably generating more heat inside the shop than outside, <laughs> even on a hot day um, with all the electric, you know, compressors and everything running. So, um, so what I did, like when the freeze was coming, I have a bunch of, I basically put some big cardboard up on the door just to create an air pocket between the garage door and the interior space. And that actually seemed to work pretty good. Some like thick cardboard from a, that was around a pallet that I got recently. So put that near the compressor station, which is right up, right next to the big garage door. I didn't want like the moisture separator to freeze or anything. Um, and then I, I ran, uh, I normally have like that, Roll around AC is also a heat pump, so it usually keeps it pretty warm in the winter. If I'm working in there, I really don't have to run anything; just the all the machinery kind of keeps it pretty warm. Um, but with this freeze, it was like and like overnight when I'm not running the equipment, I have another uh, one of those little circulating oil heaters. Um, so I run the heat pump and that, and it you know basically keeps everything above freezing in there, and above the condensation point. I guess the main thing I got worry about. Um, but with no power, it's like, it got pretty cold in there. It didn't quite get to freezing, but it was in the, it was probably in the high forties in the garage. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was kind of scary. And as far as equipment goes, um, cause you know, there's a lot of, a lot of water in the air, in the, uh, the air handling system right before it gets to the refrigerator or the, the dryer. So I kind of worry about that freezing up and the chiller, you know, there's antifreeze in the Neo and the spindle chiller. So that has to get really, really cold before that's in danger. But, um, you know, the other risk is I don't want any condensation forming on the spindle. Right. So I had to kind of let everything warm back up, uh, before I could turn on power up the Neo on Tuesday. Well, I'm, I'm yeah, glad yeah. everything, uh, is you're okay and all that, but I, I feel like oh, this yeah. last week you probably made the most accurate parts you've ever made. Right. Since the temperature was <laughs> yeah. so, so consistently cold. <laughs> yeah, it was nice actually. Um, like I'd kind of forgotten what hot was like in here. Like last summer was like really bad, even with the AC. And then today was kind of a little reminder of <laughs> how hot it can get in there. Because if it's seventy outside, if I'm running the shop all day, it's starting to get to like close to ninety. And uh, like during the summer, it gets like one ten, one fifteen in there with everything running. So when I get the mini split in, that's going to be a lot better. So that's actually supposed to be my my march project so just gonna kind of get time to get the electrician out here pull the circuit for it okay well so you guys uh you didn't have well i know you guys probably didn't have this weather but the other like the other big impact that i've been noticing is like logistics you know in the u.s like all the shipping logistics are just like a whole week lost right <laughs> everything stopped uh, at least east of me like all the way to the east coast so i had like yeah. all kinds of supplies and stuff coming in from mcmaster and uh Zometry and everything it's just kind of just been in limbo for a week we so. basically had to just tell people like we're like we can't even just try to over overnight stuff because like usually carbide like we're trying to stay on top of like shipping parts to people but yeah. 
this past week it's just been a total loss basically like you're lucky if it gets there in two days three days um the whole country's felt it yeah uh, so like a lot of airports were closed it's kind of funny i had a material order um i thought i had plenty of material here but there's been like a, a pretty good run on orders and um so i kind of ran through that faster than normal which is good uh but i kind of saw it coming so i ordered uh kind of the restock and that was right before this they announced the bad weather right so it made it about halfway between the supplier and here and it's been stuck i think it's in kentucky it's been stuck there for over a week and then um on wednesday when things kind of thought out here i ordered like a overnight order from mcmaster just to kind of get me through to the other one showed up and that's stuck <laughs> so <laughs> it's like i think like probably Monday or Tuesday, they'll, they'll all update and they'll probably all like be here in a few days. I'm gonna have like so much material, <laughs> but uh, I'll go through it pretty fast. Yeah. Do you have a material rack over there just to stage everything? Not yet. So what I really want to do, um, so I'm starting to order pretty large quantities now, like 30, 30 plates, 60 plates. Um, and I want to leave them on the little, little skid, little pallet they come on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a pain in the butt and a waste of time just to unstack that stuff and move it onto a shelf or whatever. It's heavy, right? Uh, these are like 18 by 12 inch by one inch, um, acetyl and, and mix six, same size, but thinner. So, uh, like what I'd really like to be able to do is just leave it on the pallet and have a place to store it on the pallet and they're small pallets. They're not like a full size pallet. Um, at least so far they haven't been, but yeah, even like in my garage with, the wife's car in there, there's not even room for that. So uh, right now I just kind of have a little, little place I can stack it directly on the floor. Um, but this is the first time I've ordered in this quantity. So this will be much bigger than what I've normally stored up there. So I basically have another section. So now you know, it's gonna be twice as high as what I've stacked so far, but more stacks, does that make sense? I don't wanna go too high because it could get dangerous, mm -hmm. but uh, these would be like two feet high several stacks until I get it all put away, but I'm gonna have to unfortunately take it off the pallet because it's not enough room there for the pallet and the wife to park the car mm. in her bay. So yeah, I'm squatting on her bay and like the very, the very front of it to keep my material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life in a garage is kind of interesting. <laughs> Shop in a garage. I mean. but. Yeah. We're not much better. I mean, we get a bunch of material all the time. Uh, we keep one pallet of assorted materials by the, the 750. And as we go through it and we order more stuff, um, as space clears up on that pallet, because there's a bunch of different stock on it, we just pile more stuff on it. So ideally, we would get rid of that pallet and organize stuff. But until we actually run through everything and like get everything off that pallet, we can't really get rid of it. And so since that pallet's there, we just throw more stuff on it. And it's a really bad uh, self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah, that's funny. I know uh, I was at uh, Uline's website recently ordering more uh, shipper boxes. And um, their, their main, their featured product last or this week was their um, racking for pallet storage. I was like, oh, just drooling on it. <laughs> so I want that and a forklift. <laughs> right, I'd be set. Did I ever show you guys that picture of my old job's like vertical uh, like storage system? It was like an automated it, electric storage system. Ooh, like like it conveyed the product to you when you needed it. 
Uh, it, it was just like so. It, oh, it, wait, was it like a, a rotating, like sort of like when you go to a, a hotel or something, and they put your thing on a carousel and it just takes it away? Yeah, and it's like, vertical, vertical, and each each oh, shelf nice. could hold, I think, two thousand pounds. And like you, it's all electronic, so there's a control panel. You can call up each rack and you can adjust them. But it was pretty cool. It, it would like pull the tray out and then you know, bring it down to you, and it would pull it back in and then put it away. Pull the next one up. And you could cycle it, and you could tell it to come out. And but we ended up putting like a bunch of like um, old mold bases and stuff in there, and also uh, some other storage things. But it, it was pretty cool. It was really expensive. Um, it was something that I yeah, ended I up seeing at West Tech. I think they're like anywhere between fifty to a hundred grand. But the this the space it's saved, it's like it pays for itself, right? Because if you're paying square footage and stuff to hold things. We're able yeah. to stack a bunch of stuff now in one ten by five area versus before yeah, high, it, high density storage. Is the way yeah, before <laughs> having like all yeah. these pallet racks, like you know, ten twenty feet across, holding all these things and stuff like that. So it was yeah. it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. And like you can store vertically without needing that forklift that Eddie so desperately wants in his garage. <laughs> yeah, well, I am definitely getting the. Um, I don't know if you guys heard the business of machining a couple of weeks ago. They were talking about the little uh, baby pallet jack. So I'm ordering one of those. I've been waiting for it to uh, go off back order at Northern Tools. But it's the one Saunders, they, they love them at their shop. And it's just the right size for the little Euro pallets that my uh, stock comes in. I mean, uh, yeah, my material comes in. And I'm getting to the point where it's like sometimes the LTL freight guy has you know, pallet jack to run it up and sometimes they don't or or they won't, I should say, right? <laughs> like, uh, we're just dropping it off. I got to go, you know, he puts it right in the street and I have to kind of transfer it up. Oh, man. You know, a few plates at a time. And uh, yeah, you can definitely tell when the Teamster driver comes by. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say what what carrier, but, um, but anyway, yeah. So I'd like to just get that little pallet jack and leave it on the pallet and just run it right up to the garage. Right, That right there would save me like, 20 minutes on a material delivery. So having to carry a couple plates at a time, transfer them up to the grade. Cause it's up at my, uh, Wince has been here. It's a, it's a pretty good uh, grade from the street to my, my garage door. Hmm. So yeah. So it's not fun walking up with you know, 400 pounds of material <laughs> back and forth. Yeah. So yeah, pallet jack, uh, it's just right. And it, I already kind of, it looks like it, I can store it like without taking a lot of space. It'll fit under the air compressor right up against the garage door. So it's like it's not going to be in the way when I'm not using it, if I measured correctly. Hmm. Well, in the words of Saunders himself, that sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted one, but I never knew. I didn't know they come. They came in that size. Like they're always too. They're the ones I'm familiar with are way too big, right? I would never be able to like, efficiently store it. It'd be in the way all the time. Um, but this one has like stubby forks and they're narrow, they're narrow, but they're more importantly, they don't, they're, um, they don't stick out that far from the wheels, right? They're, they're short. So that's perfect. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to think what else is going on. Oh, so like, you know, talking about all the shop stuff. So, if you guys have been following my Instagram, you probably see, uh, like, I don't want to say what I make. I think most people know, but <laughs> if they're following along, but um, just to kind of protect my clients, uh, you know, they're somewhat proprietary about something. So um, let's just say I make 
large ice trays. <laughs> Let's call it that. <laughs> and yeah, and I've been making a lot of ice trays lately. <laughs> so, um, you know, switch over from aluminum to acetyl this year, which is, that's like been the biggest, like the best change for me since I started working with this client. Because uh, it's so much faster, right, to machine that stuff. Yeah, it took a little, like, took a little while to get the process worked out, but now it's dialed in. And um, I've been focusing a lot on, like, the rest of the workflow, getting the programming. I think we talked about it on the last episode, you know, trying to automate and template everything. Um, but a lot of the other stuff is just, like, what I do in the shop and when I do it, right? Uh, so I can get more, like, basically shorter turnaround on, on each of these. So I went from making, when we were doing them in, in Mike 6, I was, you know, it'd take days per part, and now it's parts per day, right? So that's a whole different ballgame for me. But it also, you start finding the weaknesses in your, kind of just your workflow, right? When you're trying to keep that cadence. Um, so this, like, uh, material, like we were talking about the material, uh, keeping it in stock and then also stored and efficient, you know, basically, in that small space, when I'm doing that much work, I got to keep everything out of the way, right? It gets in the way. So that's the other thing. I've been kind of physically re rearranging some things um, just so I have a good physical workflow in the shop. I don't know. I, I think I took a lot of these ideas from business and machining. You know, they're just, they're always talking about doing lean things around the shop, especially like the cleaning. That's another big thing. So this stuff's really messy to work with. It's plastic machining. And I'm removing around eight pounds of material on every part. So it's a lot of acetyl <laughs> to clean up the sticks to everything inside the machine. So, um, you know, just kind of even getting the cleaning to be more efficient, like doing it at the right time. Like there's a couple of spots mid program or between programs, right? On the same part where it's a good time to kind of clean or not so much clean, but push the stuff into the, into the chip tray at the bottom, like clean off the rails and all that kind of stuff. So like now, I don't know. It's, it feels good. Like I got this good flow going. I think January was good. February, I need to go back and look. But I think I made twice as many parts as I did in January. And March is probably going to be doubled again. Um, and I'm still like, because of all these kind of workflow changes, it's like I'm able to keep up with it, right? Then Neo can keep up with it. So... I, you know, I was like last year, I was really thinking I need to get a second machine, right. To kind of hit a certain, uh, production number, right. To kind of keep up with my client's growth. But, um, it's almost feel like just doing these process changes. It's almost like having a second machine because now I get so much better utilization out of the Neo. Like it's spindles always running. It's, it's, there's hardly any wasted time on it anymore. Um, I don't know. That's I, actually <laughs> really good to hear. Cause I was, um, not only is your process faster, but like, how do you, from like a year ago to now, how do you feel like you're, uh, um, how fast can you get G code out compared to where you were a little while back? Yeah. So that's one of the biggest challenges because with these ice trays, <laughs> um, every, every, uh, design is unique. Like we never make the same part twice. So it's always first article every time. So that means your cam's not, you know, you're programming it for the first time and then you're running it at the machine, right? Untested code. It's always the first time you run it. So that's that's been a challenge. From experience, I've learned kind of where I need to watch things and where I don't, and especially in the simulation, right? Simulation becomes critical. Um, and there's, 
areas, like the geometry is similar, like the overall geometry of the parts of, you know, there's some variation there in overall size and everything, but for the most part, they're a, a generic sense of this, they're pretty much similar. Um, they, they differ in the details, like uh, kind of the artistic part of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say, or the branding or whatever. Um, there's always some different feature on it, right? So that part's hard to automate. But like the roughing, the gross roughing, let's just say like the seven half of the total eight pounds that we remove is fairly easy to kind of automate the programming. And just, by automate, really it's like Fusion doesn't have much in the way of automation. Like it sounds like feature cam, right? But you can use uh, templating and kind of have that, code, you know, a lot of it's just like how you select the geometry and stuff like that. So if you have it kind of a generic version of this part, um, and then you bring in the actual geometry, kind of bring it in as a derived feature. You can already have a lot of the, like the shell already programmed, right? There's, you can already have a lot of the cam in there. You might have to click on a little bit of geometry. If, you, if you're smart about that, you'll minimize that too. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's kind of using Lockwood's, Rob Lockwood's, I don't think he calls them templates anymore. It's different than Fusion's cam template, right? It's more like a project template. The key is making decisions ahead of time, right? Not having to make them not having to make those same decisions over and over again on every project. So you make them once you test them and then you kind of store them in a template uh, project. And then every time you start a new one of these parts, you copy that template project and along with all the experience that you've put into it, right? That's where the, the key time saving comes in. Yeah. So that that's, I'm, I would say I'm probably 80% down the road of implementing what I want to in that area, like getting the, the programming faster. Um, and the other half is, you know, I've become faster because I've got a lot more experience than I did last year doing these particular parts. You learn a lot doing them and making them. Um, and I don't know like how I'm going to get the next 20%. <laughs> That's kind of, cause that now we're down to the things that are, are, you know, very different between articles or between parts. Right. I don't know, you know, without switching to something like feature cam that can actually bring some feature automation, um, I'm probably as far as I could go with automating fusion. So, and that the one big thing, like if we could get to a standard outer dimension on these parts, which is probably not going to happen for a bunch of reasons, but, um, you know, then there's a whole nother section we could automate and we could also, uh, we've standardized on stock size, but we could actually have it pre-cut and all the outer features already done. Like I could be doing stock setup and, base plate creation. Um, cause I think, you know, these are, these are like an assembly. It's a one inch thick acetyl and then a mic six base plate underneath. Um, and it's not, it's pretty kind of, I don't want to say complex, but it's not just a straight profile out of profile. It's actually got some features on that. Um, so it'd be great if we could like have those, like just spend a day making those assemblies and getting them ready for, you know, like, they'd be blanks, right. For, future jobs, but they vary too much, <laughs> like in, uh, length and width, like it would never, every, every profile, outer profile is unique also on these things. So, um, and they have to be, if you kind of knew how they're using it, it would make sense. So, um, they have to accommodate a lot of different production processes that these things get used for a lot of different equipment, right? They have different size requirements. So it's interesting work. I actually like it. What's that rule that you have to do something 10,000 hours to become expert. So I'm like, <laughs> I think I have the first thousand hours <laughs> down. Uh, hey, Eddie, work. random question. 
so the Neo's chip fin, I would say its capacity is slightly more than that of a piece of luggage you would put in the <laughs> overhead bin on a plane. So how much of that is taken up by eight pounds of Delrin? Yeah, so that's an interesting thing too. So um, part of the workflow, so it used to be I could make two of these parts and then I have to empty it out. Um, so 16 pounds, right, of material. Um, that's that's for the acetyl ones. When I was making these out of mic six, I could probably make six or probably six or seven of them before I had to empty it out because they're you know, much denser. Chips are probably the same size. Well, actually, probably, actually, that's not true. But it's mostly like the, 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 the plastic's fluffy <laughs> and it's staticky, right? It, it kind of, it doesn't want to compact very well. Um, and it doesn't have gravity working for it like the aluminum does. The aluminum, actually, the Neo, the way it handles the kind of chip collection on aluminum, to me, is works really well, or at least for the stuff I was doing. Um, the Seedle stuff's been a little more tricky, although now I clean out mid-process. by clean, I mean, I just get the stuff into the chip tray um, right after roughing, and those are the heavier chips. And if I get those in first, it kind of settles. Like, I can now do three, maybe four, four parts before I have to empty that out, whereas it was two before, um, just because it's kind of settling and fitting in. And also level out the, the chip tray. So uh, after roughing's done, I basically open up. I have this little rake. It looks like me tending my little Zen garden. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, I have to kind of, because it all builds up on one side because it just happens to be where I'm basically that direction that the cutter is throwing the chips. Um, so if I come and kind of move that out, get it all level out, and then I can get like a, at least two more parts in there before I have to empty it out. So those are, again, those are these little lessons. They sound like nothing, but they make a big difference because cleaning it out is a mess, especially if I'm trying to do two of these parts in a day or three in a day. I still spend the same amount of time doing it, but it's more overlapping, I guess, right, with the income producing work instead of stopping everything. That's kind of been my strategy, like interleaving processes so everything's just running. So the Neo can kind of do its thing and I'm doing something and the Neo's not waiting on me. That's the big thing, right? right. Look, for right. Every, mm-hmm. look for every point in the process where the machine's waiting on me and, and see if I can eliminate it. So that's kind of, that had some good luck with that. Did the work last year and I'm seeing the benefit this year. The work ramped up a lot, like quickly. Clients, uh, you know, seeing some success on their end, which translates into more work for me, which is, I consider success. But uh, keeping up with them, it had been a challenge last year. I mean, the switch from aluminum to Acetyl made a big difference too, right? That's that's kind of really the single most important factor in allowing me to kind of uh, keep up with them. So that was a huge scaling plus for us. Does the chip bin have to be closed for the Neo to operate? No, but if you don't have it in place, it's just going to dump it all on the floor. It's really just like a... You know, like when you're draining your oil, if you mm-hmm. do your own oil, it's like the oil pan, you know, like when you unscrew that screw, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't have the pan there, it's just going to go on the floor. That's basically... I, I was bad. just thinking the- from a lazy perspective, is there something that I could make where I could shove like a, uh, a vacuum Conveyor. hole in there and just have it like suck the Delrin out? It's basically just a sheet metal box, a, a rectangular box, There's nothing fancy about it. Mm-hmm. You could easily replace it with, uh, you know, a custom... Um, sheet metal with a conveyor belt. That stuff right out of the machine as it's coming out. Have the floor angled a little bit so it pushes it down and at the bottom of that angle is just like a giant hole where a vacuum hose is being, you know, sucking everything out of there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, what I, you know, what I like is just like what you have on a, a 
VF2, right? You have the little... Conveyor? Uh, yeah, or, and then you have the little, uh, what do you call it, the chute that goes up and dumps into a big trash can or the hopper yeah. or whatever. Yeah, That's yeah. what I want. <laughs> that, that would actually... <laughs> I mean... That would get rid of that task. It, is it really just sheet metal, like Ben? No, I mean, it's a... It's a it's um so a box, the metal shoot. box. Uh-huh. Um Yeah, if you look under the table of the Neo, like if you know like the table's what twenty by sixteen plus the magazine on the back, and then the the sides of the like the inner walls of the Neo, um, the polymer concrete, it's all sloped. It's not like straight walls, it's sloped. They're like a funnel, right? And they funnel the chips. Um, to hit the yeah. wall down. It's actually a pretty nice design. I think the chip evacuation on the machine is actually pretty good for such a simple design. I have very, very rarely have any problems with it. Um, yeah, Chris, basically imagine if you took the Nomad, you took out like all the, the paneling on it mm -hmm. and just put a big funnel underneath it. That's yeah. the oh, design perfect. of the Neo. <laughs> and then a box at the bottom of the funnel. To okay, okay. Yeah. I, I'm, in my brain, I'm just imagining it because it wouldn't be that difficult to sheet metal bed something and then uh put in like a couple of like motors that are controlled like just to go forward and then you can have it bring the chips out onto like some kind of trash can or something right yeah i mean you, yeah, could, you actually... could do it conveyor style but you could also just build a custom air box and hook it up to like regular woodworking dust collection that, that's got, what i was like, thinking lightweight yeah. plastic yeah, chips yeah, that's yeah. what i was thinking yeah so i do keep my i'm still doing material separation here um so like aluminum i keep in recycle uh, well, I haven't had to recycle it yet, but I'm getting there. Right? Uh, I've got quite a bit collected, like in 30-gallon trash cans. Eventually, I need to just run a U-Haul because I don't have a truck, right? <laughs> Take that down to the recycler. But uh, the plastic, nobody wants the plastic. So uh, that's just going in you know, hefty bags. It's really not that much, especially like once I dump the bin and put it in a trash bag, I can actually, then I can kind of compact it. Um, so I usually get like three or four of those bags full and then those go in like a big box. Yeah, I can't, you can't sell that stuff. It's not worth anything. I need to find somebody who has like a 3D printer who would want to pelletize it. <laughs> I mean, the there, there's that, um, there's that one guy that's making that um, desktop injection molder. I'm blanking on the name oh, right yeah. now. Yeah, actually, that would probably work because I don't think you could. I don't, there's no such thing as like a seal filament for a 3D printer, right? I don't think that works. It does work for injection molding. Yeah, so speaking of plastic, I'll tell you about my warp plastic challenge. And then, Chris, I think you got one to share with this. So I've got um, most, for the most part, the the 18 by 12 by 1 inch plates that are coming in. You know, they have they always have a little bit of warp. Uh, the tolerance on those is nothing like, like six. Um, but most of them are flat enough to go on the vacuum table. But like in every batch, I get maybe one or two plates that are just too warped to even go on the vacuum table. And I can't use them, right? Um, I have no way to kind of get them faced on one size for those that fly on the vacuum table. So I need to, um, I just been kind of stacking those up. I don't want to throw them away because I, I know I can save them. I just need to, uh, you know, Winston and I were actually noodling around some ideas. But I think I, I've got something that'll work. I'm just going to get a, a fixture plate, like a big, large, like six plate that covers the bed or a little bit bigger than the part, right? Or the stock plate and then just put some mighty bike clamps or something. I just need to be able to grip it at the bottom um, so I can run the face mill across the whole face on the top. So I was looking at uh, mighty bike has some, uh, what's the, it's not the pit bull. What's the, uh, 
what's the other real popular kind of the one that kind of bites into the mature when you screw it down uh, is it the one that looks like the the hexagon no like the eccentric nut no it looks deal? like a looks like a pit bull um it's like the pit bull is the one that's like the pit bull is permanently screwed in it doesn't move right that's like, like what saunders uses on is uh i may have it backwards um when he uses on the mod vice right it, they, those don't you know you, you tighten those down they stay tightened down but they have another design that you when you tighten it down it kind of bites into the material um but i mean it's similar to the centric that you're talking about winston like actually i could probably get away with just the their eccentric uh knife edge clamps but i need i need a little bit of adjustment because you know i actually have two different stock sizes now that i need to accommodate we have a we're moving to eight and a half or 18 by 12.5 just to accommodate some larger ice trays <laughs> there you go and uh but you know some of the stock will be 12 and some will be 12 and a half wide and i want this fixture to kind of accommodate either size and then there's some variability right in the cut there's some tolerance loose tolerance there so it needs to have a little bit of adjustability so i was looking at like they actually have mighty bite um these clamps you'd normally you'd pocket this geometry the way mighty bite says and this thing drops in there and works um but they have uh that same little clamp on they call it modular right so it's already they've already got it on this little uh fixture component that you can then it's just like two m8 screws to put it onto your fixture so you don't have to do the pocket geometry it's just, just a threaded hole right or they have another version that's that same concept but it's got a slot so you have some adjustability about one inch of adjustability so that one actually i like so that might actually work perfect for this um but it's kind of overkill like i think i could do this simpler just getting your knife edge like a, a row of knife edges on to hold one side of the plate and then a adjustable piece on the other side that just has a couple of pit bulls on a bar right and i just kind of push it against the stock screw it down and um or maybe even do an eccentric screw kind of push the whole bar against the stock i don't really have to hold it very very i, I don't even think rigidly. you need the pit bull i think the pit bull is still a little bit too much have you seen the carlane low fixture profile clamps no the tiny vice link on that uh i think this is way better for what you're trying to do because okay. the, the one thing i don't like about the pit bulls is they do stick out kind of high but these little carlane tiny vice edge clamps are really low profile and it's super simple you just make a like a pocket slot or something for it to sit in and you when you tighten it down, it moves over one millimeter or 40,000 or something. Yeah. Like okay. And yeah, they're, they're serrated and this would be more than enough. I mean, there's like hundreds of pounds of clamping pressure or something like that. So, um, oh, wait, you said they're eccentric. Yeah. They're, they they're, they're, uh, they're, I think they're eccentric. I'm blanking I'm on for the... it's a countersunk, uh, Oh yeah. Bolt that goes yeah. down into a and taper. It pulls it forward. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So, yeah. so I, I love these because they're, you don't need as much like, stuff in the fixture it's super simple to just add it anywhere and it doesn't really need like a pocket or walls or anything you can just <laughs> dump it anywhere and it'll work and it's got enough pressure to do i think what you're trying to do is just basically face material so yeah and like, they're super yeah, the, low profile course yeah yeah so I'm, i have an inch to work with so okay that's, a, that's actually the good news um yeah. but yeah exactly i think you know cutting course is super low i just need to take like you know 0.1 or 0.2 millimeters off to get it to sit right but yeah. um so it's funny because you know i was sitting 
I spent about like an hour and a half today thinking through, looking through the mighty bike stuff, um, had this fixture in mind. And then I started thinking, it's like, again, it's like, it's even simpler. Like I could just <laughs> take that same fixture plate and machine a couple, like probably three holes on each side, countersunk holes, and then just run some sheet metal screws into the stock. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? From underneath the plate. That's, that's really all I need. I'm not sheet metal screws, um, wood screws into the Delrin because mm. the way the we use the material like the borders are kind of um, they're outside of the geometry so I actually have some some meat I could I could send like a wood screw into without affecting like it won't be in the final part um, so it's like that's as simple as it gets right yeah, um, yeah I mean the only thing I work if you want to go even simpler uh, you go if you think back to our nomad days like we just had a piece of material like uh, bolted in on one side and then we just had another piece of material uh, on the other side that had the slots oh, yeah. and you would just push it up with your hand and tighten it down. Like, yeah. I honestly think that would be just enough too if you're just decking Delrin. Like, it, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that would actually, that almost would work. Just put like a... I mean, and now you have like friction. a nice uh, spindle so you could take like a single threaded, uh, you know, four mil or something yeah. and just make the serrations and stuff inside the, the side of the wall of that that bar clamp yeah, or whatever exactly. but, i mean yeah I, I mean making stuff like this though is not as fun as as buying some of these cool little fixture things but. well i mean so m the thing about your like the wide bike or even the i think the ones you were talking about the car lane it's even better i think um over time using it would be faster than going and get the drill drilling holes mm -hmm. um you know pre-drilling the holes and then dealing with the wood screws so you know it's easier to design but it's the use is actually a waste of time. So I think yeah. this is much faster setup. You know, it's a little bit more investment up front on time and money, but the reusability and the setup is much, much faster with this with yeah. idea. So. Uh, Mighty Byte has a version of this. It's just that theirs is like a hexagon. I believe it's called like a Series 9 clamp. So basically oh. it's like an eccentric hexagon and each side uh, can basically clamp a different amount of distance. And it, I'm probably explaining it pretty bad. And when you when you look at series nine clamps, you, you'll see, and it has it marked so like how many millimeters uh, away the distance is from each edge. So like for example, one edge will be two millimeters away, and the other one will be three, four, or five as you turn the hex. So you can put oh, different size materials. If your material ranges to different thicknesses, it can compensate for that by rotating the hex. I was confusing mighty bite. Yeah, Pitbull is what I was talking about. Yeah. Like no, the the um, Carlane yeah. equivalent to Mighty Byte, the the one that I showed yeah. you, would be the series, the Mighty Byte Series Nine clamp. I thought it was good to go. That's why I was kind of looking at Mighty Byte at first because I have Saunders Mod Vice and I have a bunch of Mighty Byte on the top of those, but they're the Talon grip. That's the one I was. Looking oh, okay. So they're not. Yeah, they don't have the eccentric, so they wouldn't wouldn't work as well. But the yeah, the Carlane stuff looks. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and especially if I can get it in smaller sizes than the Mighty Bike, smaller threads. Like, I don't want to do an M8 thread. I'd rather do, like, an M4 um, into the fixture. So I will check that out. Thank you very much. So that was my warp story. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to, like, throw these away. i got to get them working. <laughs> you know right, right, it just right. drives me nuts. I, I know yeah. I can fix it. Yeah. It almost works, but uh, almost sticks on the back of it. It's not reliable, it, the warp they have in. Um, so tell me about your, your fun with plastic. So at work, we got this job that uh, it's peak plastic, P-E-E-K, with 30% glass filled. 
and I've never cut this stuff before. Uh, peak is usually pretty easy to machine. But peak with 30%, it was a whole different ballgame. But basically, if you imagine this part being like an H, and if we're looking at from the front of the part, the H is facing you, and if we look at the bottom, which is rotating on the x-axis 90, um, the left side of the H is on a different z-plane than the right, and there's a bunch of these valleys and angles and stuff. So my issue with this part was they at work they wanted to do this as a five-axis one-and-done setup, and the part's only like five inches by four inches. So uh, and at the thinnest is sixty thousandths, and at the thickest is a hundred thousandths, and some of these uh, surfaces that are 60,000 thick have bosses and ribs that come up another 180, 200,000. So, and the bosses are 70,000 thick. So nothing about this freaking job was like, like thick or easy. And on top of that, making it plastic uh, really made it difficult for me to figure out how to do this. So I actually spent a lot of time in the beginning, like theoretically in my brain, knowing that this would probably not work out, but I just... I just machined it as I would any normal part like aluminum because I feel I felt like I was spending too much time in the cam process and not enough time on the machine to see how this is really going to cut. Like basically spending all my time in front of my chair trying to think of all the problems that might happen instead of just getting it to the machine and running it and then looking at what my real problem is. So I just said, forget it. I'm just going to program this like I would anything, get on the machine and see what works and what doesn't. And actually, I got like 90% of the way through and everything was fine. It wasn't until I flipped around to the backside and I had to rough that part. Um, even though I had the roughing entry point controlled so that it would go from outside toward the vise uh, to try to minimize like vibration, as soon as it started cutting it, it basically, because the helical or the helix of the flute was going upward, it was pulling material and creating this vibration and it would basically snap off the tips of the edges. So... What I ended up doing uh, after like a couple tries, like trial and error type things, was I had to break up the H into multiple quadrants. So if you look at an H, uh, the top left tip would be quadrant run, the top right would be quadrant two, then the center part where the H has the uh, cross beam, that'd be quadrant three, and the bottom left would be four and the bottom right would be five. And I would do all my roughing and finishing and quadrant run at the same time so that it would be only about an inch of unsupported material. Um, on that side and it worked so I basically would just kind of chip my way down I go one you know rough and finish front and back then I go to quadrant two rough finish front and back then I go to quadrant three which is that cross beam bar and I'm oversimplifying the geometry there's a lot of like weird things going on in here like there's bosses and ribs and there's like these weird uh, surfaces and angles that are going on and I had to uh, recreate some things because the engineer who designed this was doing a really bad job of like creating these surfaces. So it was a huge challenge as far as like, cause I've never really had to do anything like this before. And this is the first time that I've had to do this type of machining is incredibly tedious programming wise because I had to sure it's, there was a lot of copy pasting, but it was like, I don't know. Mastercam is just like, there's still a lot of things I had to change and check and make sure. And uh, where I was, sectioning the quadrants also had problems um, because there are these basically where the part meets where my quadrants had to be in a specific location and I was really worried about mismatch so to counter the mismatch all I did was try to leave a quarter inch and mill or whatever till I can get there if I was doing like the floor pass I would just let it sit there for a little bit longer like I would intentionally half the surface feet per minute 
to slow it down. And my thinking was that if I could get it to, if it did vibrate on any way, that if it was going slow enough, it would kind of like vibrate itself to correction, if that makes sense. Like if it was yeah. bouncing back and forth, back and forth, but I kept hitting it like slowly and consistently that it would still be okay. And it worked. Like I don't have any mismatch. Now that could be because it's peak plastic. I don't think this method would work in aluminum or, or, or the metals or things like that, but this worked in plastic because for whatever reason. And I basically just did this and, and made my way down until the very end. I had the center section, which is almost completely supported, right? Like the upside down U of the, of the H and I just took my quarter inch in mill. Um, I I basically contoured and just ten thou you know depths on the Z here until I got to the end, and I left three uh, basically tabs on altered planes. So one in the front, two in the back, uh, because this I had to make it for the CMM guy to be able to hold it and like inspect it basically. So I'm giving him the entire block for him to clamp so that he could use that as a reference, you know, to pick off on the points and stuff like that. So all in all, it was a, it was a lengthy project, you know, it's supposed to be a simple, but because of all the constraints of like the material and the thinness of the plastic, it ended up being quite a, a difficult project for me. Actually the hardest thing I've ever programmed uh, so far. So yeah, so that was fun. I mean, I learned a lot and, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful that my my supervisors and stuff they're not like breathing down my shoulder and trying to like get me to like hurry up hurry up they they were looking at me like okay just take your time do it right you know don't worry about it because i i feel sometimes like put a lot of stress on myself when i feel like i'm taking too long on something so um i i appreciate that but anyways um yeah so that was pretty much it like i don't know if you guys have ever had to do that i've never really had to do it to that extent where i had to break down a part into like six quadrants but um, it worked for this this type of material, and the mismatch was basically non-existent. I was getting really good surfaces, and my idea of just slowing the end mill down and, and covering a large area of the flat, going slow and kind of like maybe a couple spring passes, took out any of the variation from the vibration on the first pass. So um, I ended up doing that, and it worked out well. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that with everybody. I am... I'm most surprised that you're not getting like big uh, deformation of the material after machining it. Cause I know acetal and some of the other plastics, like it's just like aluminum. It's just like wood. As you start removing material, the internal strain is going to start coming out, but is peak not like that? It doesn't seem to be, which I mean, I, I have, it's a five by four inch piece and I have about an inch of it clamped in the vise. So it's got meat. You know, it's holding on very tight. So when I'm when I'm doing the roughing passes and before I do the finish, I'm I'm leaving like twenty thousands. And then when I go in to finish the floor, that's when I have the surface feet and I go slower. And it seems to be working. Like all my tools are rounded corners. I have no sharp corner tools. I'm trying to yeah, think, not pull as answer, hard. Yeah, I think the answer to this question, I think peak is pretty well known for being a potato chip <laughs> when you machine it. Um, but I don't know about the glass field stuff. Maybe that's different. Um, but it's pretty common, I think, to have to anneal peak after machining or during machining, right? Um, between roughing and finishing, it, depending on the tolerance you're trying to hit. But Yeah. Um, For this part, it's plus or minus 5,000. Yeah. So 
I haven't got the report back yet, so I could be off. But I mean, for me, I just did my quick micrometer check across where I could, and everything came out within like a thou or two. So I was pretty happy about that. But we'll see true position of holes and and things like that, um, and and how it ends up turning out. But yeah, I was just as shocked. Like I I thought it was going to be really really bad, but this is like a perfect example of me agonizing over a problem that didn't exist. Right? Like I just needed to get to the machine faster, do it the way that I know fail fast and move on quicker right as opposed to me sitting there even though i knew this might have been a problem like i i don't i'm not able to come up with a solution because i've never experienced this so i just need to see it and like after seeing it and like how it reacted to the end mill and and what it's doing it then it helped me visualize the solution to my problem much quicker than i could have if i was just trying to like figure it all out in theory in my head at my desk yeah yeah i think there's a whole episode in that thought right there, which is that, you know, you, especially like when you're programming the part, you spend so much time worrying about, you know, feature X and it's like something completely different that bites you. Right. Yeah. Like the faster you find that out (laughs) that you're focusing on the wrong thing, which usually means go out and make a cut, right. And see what's going on. Um, like that's a good lesson to learn. And, uh, I've definitely, you know, I've experienced that here too. Um, you know, I think it's just, some of this is maybe like all of us kind of came into this trade from outside the machining world. So this is probably everyone knows this. That we've been <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. um, you know, you learn those efficiencies, but uh, it's like, it's almost an epiphany when you figure it out. Like it's like, this just goes like, just rough it out, get the general shape, see how it behaves, especially if it's a new material, right? Or, yeah. or anything kind of new. Um, doesn't have to be material. Could just be the, you know, some funky geometry you've never cut before, um, or you know, going from three axis to multi axis, right? So, you know, you get over time, you'll you kind of get uh, intuition for how it's gonna behave on the machine, but that, there's always that first time, and uh, yeah. you know, as much data as you can gather as possible, right, <laughs> to get through that that. Uh, and you know the not knowing part is uh, yeah you know, as fast as possible. And yeah, that's a good lesson. And the only reason why I was able to do that is because my my supervisor is super cool. Now, if he wasn't cool and he was breathing down my neck and my my work was like, hey, we need this done like now, the way I would have done this part was because the backside is generally flat, even though it's not on even on one it's not one surface plane flat. It's like on varying levels. I would have done the back first and just made this a two op operation. So mill the back complete while it's still solid, make a fixture that would basically made it while I flipped it and then create tabs and bolt hole locations outside of the part. So I could bolt it down and then mill the, the whole top part of it where all the ribs and stuff are like the complex features. And that way I'm, I'm basically milling against a fully supported backside. That That's how I would do it if I was like under the gun, but because I wasn't, I, I decided to like, forget it. Let, let me try to figure this out this way and not have to do it as a two op thing. I can't remember. Was this a, uh, recurring part? Or was this like a prototype? This, this is new. Uh, this is a new part for our company and material. We've never had to do peak okay. 3% glass fill before. And then this is, uh, kind of like, I think a, like a testing type thing. Like they want to see how well we do. So we got an order for like 25 parts or something like that. So okay. it's not super big, but then it's it might be potential for future uh, future parts and stuff like that. Yeah, I was listening um, within Tolerance. They had uh, the corporate patterns. I can't remember his name, but um, 
the founder of Corporate Patterns. And he, you know, so he deals a lot with uh, his main business is making uh, I don't know what they call them forms for casting um, mm-hmm. for the mold. But he also is kind of expanding into machining cast to final shape, cast parts, large cast parts, metal, uh, mostly aluminum. So he's you know he's dealing a lot with uh, like you mentioned. There's like no flat plane on this thing. It's all these different levels. So yeah, yeah. He's like the same dealing with the same challenges. So right? he's got uh, you know it's either no really good place to clamp it or it's got like he's got to get support under like a lot of places before he starts machining. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was kind of like, I know he's using some special work holding. Uh, what do you call it? It basically like it adapts to the geometry. It's like, I think it was, I can't remember if it's hydraulic or pneumatic, but basically they're like the, I, I got the impression they're like pins. They come up and they contact, you know, they contact the casting at various places, all kind of random. But once they're in contact, you can lock them and then they're, they're like super rigid and what? They're, not, they're not gripping. They're just supporting it. That like sounds super cool. Wait, you got to find out what this yeah. is. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can reference the podcast. Um, I'm imagining that, that stupid desk toy that everyone had in the nineties where it was like a bunch yeah. of nails and you put your hand in yes. there and it would make the shape, and but then, then just being able to right? lock it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think that is basically, you know, but not, you know, much, much <laughs> right. coarser. Right. Grid, right, right, but, right. Um, That's cool. Like you sound like, yeah, I, I think like they're that. like little pucks. Like you put them on your T-slot table and then you can kind of strategically, you know, get them generally where you want them. And then they, they, they have a, a vertical, some vertical motion, right? To come up and then contact the part and then lock it. It's really just to stop vibration. They're not providing any work holding. They're just, uh, yeah. hard point for the thing to rest on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause he was like, he was talking about a lot of the castings, the engineer who designed the casting tells you where to do the work holding. You can only clamp here, right. To mm. kind of keep the forces correct mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. it uh, and to make sure it's got the right stress on it before you start machining. So it'll come out in the right shape. Um, so that, you know, he has to clamp it where they tell him to. And then, which is usually the bolt holes for the casting. And then, but he needs to hold it in other places, right? Because it's kind of too unsupported, vibrates this kind of stuff. Listening to that, it's like, first, I'm glad I'm not doing that kind of work. <laughs> um, and listening to you, like, I'm also glad I'm not doing that part. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> That's a pretty big achievement getting that, uh, especially, you know, hopefully it tests out good. That's going to be a good feeling. You know, if the customer says, yeah, we're good. Go do the other 25. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm always like at work, like, oh, give me the hardest thing, give me the hardest thing. And I got this hard thing, and I was like, man, I really <laughs> wish I would have had the easier things to do. But um, no, I, I, I love this. This, this is good. You know, this is going to make me better and, and, and push me to think outside the box and stuff. So, yeah. Um, no, I, I really, I kind of, I hated doing this thing because it took so long, but I also really enjoyed the, the outcome and, and so forth. So we'll see next week um, how, what my first article report comes out to be. Yeah. Very cool, and I gotta ask: any new machines? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no new machine. Actually, I did get a brother machine, but not oh, really? one that. Yeah, I got a, I got a brother sewing machine. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like literally, the joke of that day the was sewio. The brother, like, is this you know? Stitchio. Yeah, it, it was just hilarious. Everyone is basically sending me the same, the same joke. Uh, all day and it, it was delightful so um yeah i actually i got it because uh 
the the wife and I have been trying to find something to do together, and I tried to get her into CNC, but she basically just walked away from me. So the sewing machine, um, because it can do embroidery, uh, we can put files on there and they can embroider like my logo yeah. on things. So it's basically a CNC. It's basically machine. CNC yeah, with sewing machine. Yeah. So it's yeah. freaking cool, and like we're trying to like just this is something we're gonna do together uh, when we spend time, and like we're gonna. Uh, she wants to make things and I, I want to make like, you know, for my shirts or my t-shirts, I can embroider and that'd be kind of cool. So I thought it'd be just like a fun thing to uh, dip my toes into while we're hanging out together and stuff. Um, yeah. Instead so, of watching so a movie. Do you upload a SVG to it or something? Yeah. Like a DXF or SVG. And I'm still oh, trying okay. to figure out Very what cool. kind of like software to use. They have a bunch um, and you can just USB stick it in and it'll basically just, put the thing on there. So it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I, I still, I'm not hundred percent on how the sewing thing works yet. I haven't figured out most of the stuff yet, but uh, it's been fun to see her kind of take the lead on this. And I, I don't have to be the one Googling for 40 hours to learn everything. So I'm just kind of letting her take me along for the ride here. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's super cool. I'm glad to hear it. Cause I know in the, the way you do things can uh, tend to, burn you out i'm glad you guys have something you can do together yeah yeah and actually bond absolutely um and i'm doing my best to not like take over you know like i'm doing my best to just step aside and be a passenger on this one because i don't want to get like i can be very intense right when we're researching or we're learning how to do something i don't want to like scare her so i'm just kind of like really chill about this so i've been off hands letting her kind of take the lead and and seeing her kind of go through these developments and like, cause I think all three of us have gone through enough like prototyping or designing. And so in our brain, we have like a way that we think and we operate like when we have a problem, like the first thing that comes to your mind is okay, well, how many parts are we making? What is this? How do we fix her? So I don't want to like put all that on her and stress her out. So I've been trying to just let her do the thing and I'm just kind of <laughs> like, you know, falling along cause I don't want to scare her. I, I really appreciate that we can have something like this together, you know? So I, I want to try to, keep it as fun for her as possible. So I was going to suggest, um, like if she, I follow, uh, I remember her name on Instagram, Amy, Amy underscore love on Instagram, A M Y underscore L O V E. So like her description in her bio is, uh, uh, paraphrasing or I'm skipping some stuff, but it's, it's basically sewer welder machinist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, if she wants someone to like talk to she, she does basically, basically what she, um, spends most of her time doing uh, project wise is, is that embroidery with the, I don't know if she has a brother, but she's got some sort of automated sewing machine where she uploads artwork or designs the artwork and it uploads it. And then she does a lot of instant machinist related patches, like themed patches. So that's kind of where I know her from. Um, so yeah, if she wants someone to talk to, that's kind of like for stuff that, you know, like if you say something, your wife's like, doesn't want to ask you what it means. She can ask her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a micro. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, no, that's I cool. That was yeah. cool. That's perfect. Oh, sorry. No, no, yeah. Perfect. I was going to ask Winston what he's been up to and everything. Uh, not a whole lot on the machining front. Uh, unfortunately, like just with the product development cycle we've got going on, I was going to try and, like, we've got two new machines out, and I was going to try and do some speeds and feeds and get some videos out about that. But it's really hard for me to justify that, like when I've been tasked with like designing some injection molded parts for like future accessories. And so I've been like the 
the balance in my head between like machining, videos, R&D has shifted like 100% to R&D um, just because that in my head is the most exciting part. Um, and I feel a little guilty about that because like I could be doing content that would help the average user. Um, but at the same time, like each day that I don't uh, work on this project is another day that the product is delayed. Um, so I've been doing a lot of non uh, CNC stuff, but a lot of design stuff and learning the ins and outs of um, designing for injection molding has been pretty cool because that's not something we learned in college. Um, and it's, there's a lot of like just things that the mold maker knows that you don't know that you'll eventually pick up on. So it's been a, a, a re rewarding couple of months. Um, and I'm just, I'm having fun designing. So this is a question that either of you could probably answer at this point. So like when you're in designing a part that's going to ultimately end up being injection molded, um, do you design it at like, uh, final geometry and the mold maker deals with the shrinkage, like accommodating the shrinkage, or do you have to actually design the part over size and know about the, like, how does that work typically? You design the part, the customer usually designed to net and then the mold maker okay. will adjust for shrinkage. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So yeah. I was kind of wondering. And there's the shrinkage part. There's also like the, do you need to put in draft angles and yeah, stuff and whatnot? Rules. Oh, yeah. And, I am so I'm building or designing enclosures uh, for future accessories. And for that, I was told that I don't actually need to build in all the draft angles and everything because, like, if you give them a step file, like you go into Fusion, you can actually, there, there's a draft angle feature. Use it all the time. Um, yeah. So the important thing is you really need to design an enclosure with enough leeway that, like, if I'm trying to fit a circuit board in here, that the PCB has enough room that even after the draft angle is applied, everything still fits. And you just need to define like the critical interfaces, like, hey, this whole position can't move because this is where the uh, connector is being plugged into and things like that. Um, so there's a little bit of leeway, but as long as it's sort of like generative design, right? You say like, these are the hard points that you can't touch. It needs to have this kind of, this size cavity to accommodate this size PCB. Everything else around it can move just a little bit, like a millimeter here or there, it's a degree here critical. or there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so once you lay down the constraints, everything else kind of falls into place. Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of trouble with that in the beginning. Like we would get these parts, and then you know the engineering department, we were like changing stuff, and I'd be like, "Isn't this not okay?" And he's like, "Well, look at you know, pull up the print. What's the tolerance? Okay, it's plus or minus five here, whatever here. If we move this." face or this surface and we draft the angle by one degree how much are we actually pulling this out Tom? it's like barely like a thou or half a thou at most like sometimes you don't need that much draft to get it to pull away from the surface of the mold so it, it was uh interesting to see how much leeway that the mold maker actually ends up changing the part as long as it still fits like winston said the critical geometry or the important parts of the thing doesn't get really because it's unspoken that they understand that their part's going to need to be changed so that it actually works in the mold itself. But the customer will typically not try to like... Well, let me rephrase that. A, a good customer will, but a not-so-good customer may not. They, they might just give you something that's almost physically impossible to do. And then the mold maker will go in and change what they need to change to make it to actually work. 
And a lot of times I don't even think they realize that, you know, this surface has been drafted a, a degree or whatever so that we could get that to not stick to one side of the mold. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, guys, um, I don't know if you guys have anything else. I'm actually running apart right now, so <laughs> I have to wrap up early or wrap up on time, I should say. Um, you guys okay with the clung here tonight? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was yeah. good to get it's together. It's been an adequately fun conversation. <laughs> yep. And thanks, uh, Chris. Uh, I think you you got me on the right track for the uh, clamping for this uh, one-off fixture I need. Okay, cool. The only, uh, the only thing is I don't think they do metric. Oh, I don't. It doesn't have to be okay, metric. Okay, yeah, I just, I just That's my default when I'm thinking. Okay, just, <laughs> but, uh, just no, I can sure. do. Yeah, the only thing I care about is the threads, and I can do Imperial as long as they're not too big. So yeah. I only have small thread mills here. All right. Well, I will uh, say goodnight, guys. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Talk to you later.